0: Good evening. Please turn with me and your copies of God's Word to 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. After much prayer and many conversations, I've decided to move on from our study in Proverbs and begin a new journey through the letter of 1 Corinthians. I believe this study, this letter, this epistle will be valuable for us because, well first, this letter shows how an apostle deals with a church that is disunited, a church that has problems and is in the midst of a hyper-sexualized culture. Corinth is a major, or was, a major metropolitan city with much commercial influx, with many cultural influences. It was a full melting pot of paganism of every kind, especially sexual immorality. In fact, Corinth's sexual reputation was so great that two Corinthianize" became a word for committing fornication. There was a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. There was a temple to Apollo, whose figure became the epitome of male sensuality and became associated with homosexuality. The temples were said to have employed, at one point, over a thousand cultic prostitutes for use in their pagan ceremonies. Corinth was saturated with ungodly sexuality. Sounds kind of similar to something we've experienced. It's also valuable to study this letter to know that zeal, right, being zealous for truth, even God's truth, doesn't mean we know what love is. The church in Corinth was full of people that wanted to exercise their spiritual gifts, wanted to hear the word of God preached, wanted to partake of the sacraments, all good things, but they went about those things in ways that were hateful and unloving to their brothers and sisters, were divisive to the household of God, and obscured the simple message of the gospel. Zeal for truth without humility is deadly to the church. It was for Corinth can be from morning view. And so studying this letter can be valuable for us. And we'll learn more about the history and culture of Corinth as we go along. But for now, let's just read the first three letters of 1 Corinthians, the first three verses of chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians. Hear the word of our Lord. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect and holy word. Let's pray. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to... Illumine the pages of scripture for us to help us see Jesus more clearly, to help us see our sin more clearly, to help us know right from wrong, to help us love you and love each other well. Speak, O Lord, through your word and build us up. For your name we ask, amen. Tonight, we'll look at three different parties, and those will be my three different points. So, we'll look at Paul, then the church in Corinth, and then the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our three points. Let's start with Paul. Unlike the letters that we write today, where we sign our name at the end, at the bottom, biblical letters begin with the author, which kind of makes sense to me, but that's a rabbit trail. They begin with the author. So, it says, Paul. We know who's speaking. That's the first verse. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So Paul and his helper, usually an amanuensis, that means somebody that would write for him, a transcriber, transcriptionist. Uh, Sosthenes was mentioned in Acts 18, and this is probably the same Sosthenes, the one who was an overseer of the synagogue in Corinth. So these two are the senders of this letter. But notice how Paul describes himself in very clear terms. Paul, called by the will of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus. Both of these aspects are necessary for any man that would claim to speak with authority to God's church. Divine calling and apostolic sending. That's, the word, that's what the word apostle means. It means a messenger. Somebody sent with a message. Someone sent to another place to speak on behalf of another. We could say an ambassador. Paul is affirming that he is called by God himself and is sent by God as a messenger of Jesus Christ to this church. And I believe Paul is describing himself in these terms in part because he's anticipating what he's going to say later. Further on in this letter, Paul will address those false apostles, those super apostles who are questioning Paul's authority the legitimacy of his rule within the church, of his righteous standing as their father in the faith. These super apostles who by their rhetoric had so obscured the clarity and the simplicity of the gospel message that they've ultimately destroyed the message itself. These super apostles, which the Corinthians were so eager and pleased to listen to, were so concerned with rhetorical flair and impressive oration that they let the gospel itself become distorted. And when it becomes distorted, it is lost. This is a temptation in every age. For the church to find preachers who will speak with such eloquence and such majesty, such high and lofty speeches that the simplicity of the gospel is obscured and can be lost. Corinth should have been on guard against this. Morning View must be on guard against this. We should, of course, speak with doctrinal Precision, But we should not let loftiness of speech risk obscuring the gospel for its hearers. Doctrine and precision is important, for sure. If not, Paul would not have written large portions of this letter which contain deep doctrine. But we must never let our zeal for doctrinal purity crowd out the simple message that Jesus died for sinners in accordance with the scriptures... And he was raised in three days in accordance with the scriptures. Which is how Paul summarizes the gospel in chapter 15 of this letter. Jesus died for sinners. That's the gospel. We should strive for Pauline language, Pauline clarity. In fact, we should strive for language that Jesus himself used. How did Jesus speak? He spoke in a way that the simple, that the lowly, that the uneducated, that the children... And at the same time, nobody would accuse Jesus of being doctrinally shallow. The language that Jesus used, for example, in the Gospel of John is some of the simplest Greek in the New Testament. And yet at the same time, John contains some of the deepest and most profound statements about the doctrine of the Trinity. May we ever aspire to speak with doctrinal depth while maintaining the clearest and simplest language possible, lest the Gospel itself be obscured. Another thing to note about Paul is that he is having to defend his calling and his reputation because he had been vilified in his absence. Paul had planted this church, spent good time there, and then left. And in his absence, these false super apostles rose up and tried to take control of the church. No minister is immune from sin-motivated contempt, not even Paul himself. Satan can so incite rebellion and accusation and division among the body of Christ that even those with miraculous apostolic gifts are not shielded from Satan's devices. The church was guilty for various reasons of not honoring their father in the faith, for not giving him the honor that was due him by his office and by his love. And we too must be on guard against this agitation, this instigation by the devil. See, it's natural for our sinful flesh to want to rebel against authority of any kind. We see it in our two-year-olds. We see it on the news in society every day. And we see it in our hearts when we look clearly at them, at them. And Satan knows that this inclination towards rebelling against authority, any authority, can be explosive within the church. Division, dissension, slander, gossip, rivalry, selfish ambition, all the things that Paul lists as works of the flesh in the New Testament have done more damage in churches than pagan hordes and Islamic terrorists ever have. May we ever be vigilant to watch our hearts and our motives against any hint of selfish rivalry and ambition and instead be like Jesus who himself laid his life down in order to honor his father. To honor, the authority that was over him. Consider Jesus' desire to fill the fifth commandment. Have you ever thought about it? He was willing to die to fulfill that commandment, to honor his father. Would you be willing to die in order to make sure that those in authority over you were properly honored? Would you give up your life to make sure that your superior, your boss, your teacher, your parents, your pastors, your civil authorities, We're properly honored. I know that on any given day, I wouldn't want to do that. We don't even often want to give lip service, right? With a false hypocritical heart to honor those above, above us. We'd rather grumble and complain and bite against them. We'd rather talk about how dumb our boss is for this or that or how overbearing our parents are or how annoying this superior is. Such a heart reveals how similar we are to our brothers and sisters in Corinth. And why studying such a book is so relevant for us. We need to be reminded that Christ died for grumblers and complainers like me and you. Christ bore the wrath that usurpers and whiners like us had deserved. He fulfilled the fifth commandment perfectly and honored his superiors as he should have in the Lord. And that's the gospel. That's why we need to hear it. Because even though the Corinthians were so messed up. Christ died for them. And he had washed them, Paul says. He had made them his own. And the same is true for us. If you believe believe in the gospel and repent of your sins. You too have this washing. You have this forgiveness. And you have been reconciled to God himself. And you're seen by God as one who does joyfully obey the fifth commandment. Out of a heart of love. He doesn't see you as a grumbler or a complainer anymore. He doesn't see you as a rebel who bucks against authority whenever he can. The offer is there for all of us today. Just as if it was for the Corinthian church. Which leads to our second point. The church in Corinth. The church in Corinth. As we'll see, it's exceedingly encouraging to think about how Paul spoke about this church where I spent most of my week lingering. How did Paul view and speak to the believers in Corinth? With all their flaws, their sin, their attacking him. With all their unloving, immoral behavior. How did Paul address them? Well, he says in verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours let's break that down and look at it he says first to the church of God that is in Corinth it's not Paul's church he could easily have said it's my church, to my church to my people in Corinth to my tribe in Corinth to the church that I planted to the church that wouldn't be there if I hadn't gone from Athens to Corinth to that church that would have all been legitimate But he doesn't say that. Even though, humanly speaking, he is the person most responsible for the existence of his church, he knows that it's not his church. It's not Paul's. It's God's church. God owns it. God runs it. God is the one who effectually calls people to it. God has rights over it. Not Paul. God is the owner. God is the master. Not Paul. Not Apollos. Not Sosthenes. Not Peter. God. This is important. This is an issue. The issue of who has rights over the church is one that will come up multiple times as we go through this letter. So I won't linger long here tonight, but it's sufficient to note it that this is an important theme of this letter to which we will be returning very soon. Second, notice that he says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. Paul reminds... The church in Corinth, and by extension us, that those in the church of God have been sanctified. Perfect tense, completed action. Sanctified means purified, cleansed, set apart, made holy. Just as the utensils and the priests and the sacrifices in the temple were sanctified unto holy use in the temple, so too have we been set apart. And how is this sanctification received? He says, sanctified in Christ Jesus. In our effectual calling, you are united to Jesus Christ. And in that union, one of the blessed benefits is sanctification. Because we have a Savior that is pure, and we are united to Him, we become pure. We are counted as pure We can be assured because of our faithful Savior that we've been cleansed, made pure, made righteous. Christ's work as our great high priest assures us of this. He's the high priest of God, an everlasting high priest, working in God's cosmic temple to ever mediate for us. He's the go-between for us, a sinful fallen people and a perfectly holy God. How can we get up there when we are down here? There's a chasm because we have a faithful high priest. He's ever pleading our innocence, our purity, our case. He's applying his own precious sacrifice to us to cleanse us, to purify our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. But, but how can he do this? On what basis can he bridge that chasm? Well, he can do that not simply by just declaring us clean. The Bible makes clear that sin earns death. If somebody sins, somebody's got to die. It's very simple. And the good news of God is that Jesus is not only the high priest who's working in between us and God, but that he is also the sacrifice itself. It is his blood that pleads for us. He has willingly and joyfully come to earth and died in the place of a sinful people. And the fact that he's not merely a man, but also the son of God himself, one with the eternal God and creator of the universe, means that his sacrifice is eternally efficacious for us. It is infinite in its value, and it's completely sufficient to save each and every one of us. There's not just enough Jesus to cover this part of the room, but not enough Jesus to cover that part of the room. The whole church of God has been sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's good news. It doesn't matter how dirty you've made yourself. It's not the top half of the church of God that gets in. He can wash you. No sinner is outside of the reach of Jesus' grace. And no stain of sin is too indelible to resist His holy washing. None of your transgressions of God's holy law makes you unfit to be cleansed. His cleansing is complete and perfect and sufficient. Is your conscience... Hounding you tonight. Is your heart burdened by the load of your past mistakes and transgressions? Is your past something that makes you feel defiled and dirty? Then dear ones hear again how God has provided a way in Jesus Christ. For the foul and the dirty to be washed and made clean. God promises you. In his word, in Isaiah, that though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though you are red as crimson, you shall be white like wool. That's what he promises us in the new covenant, because of Jesus' work. If you are in Christ, you are not defined by your past failings. You're not known by your sinful history. God sees you as a washed, cleansed, sanctified son in his household because of the work of Jesus Christ. Take heart in that good news and love the high priest who has come that you might be washed. You might be sanctified. And if you haven't felt that cleansing of conscience, if you don't know what it is to feel purity of soul, innocence in your heart, then the Bible says you must only come to Jesus to receive it. You don't have to first wash yourself and clean yourself up. You don't have to purify yourself to come and be purified by Jesus. In fact, you can't do it. Jesus says He came to save the sick, not the healthy. He came to seek and save the lost, not those who try and find themselves and try and be found. If you feel dirty and in need of cleansing, if you feel sick of soul and need healing, then consider this Jesus described in the pages of Scripture. Hear of this Son of God and of His great work of sanctification... His great work of washing and purifying. And of His great love for sinful and dirty souls like us. Trust in that Jesus is the only way to have true and lasting peace for your soul. And cleansing of conscience. Doesn't that sound wonderful? To be able to sleep at night knowing that your conscience is clean. And there's no sin that can be counted against you. Because of Jesus' sufficient and perfect and efficacious work on the cross in your place. Nothing is lacking. Trust in that Jesus and have complete sanctification in him alone. Third, not only does Paul's language about the Corinthians call them the church of God and those that have been sanctified, he also reminds them that they're called to be holy. The Corinthians are called to be holy. Hear what he says. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Your Bible might say, called to be holy ones, hagias. Holy ones. The Church of God in Corinth and the Church of God at Morningview are called and are purified and are sanctified, not merely to then do whatever they want. We're sanctified and called to be saints, to be holy. To pursue holiness. We've been made pure and now we're called to be pure. We've been washed. And now we're called to avoid the filth of this world. Just as Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So too the church of God in Jesus Christ is called to be a kingdom of holy priests. Set apart from the sinfulness of this world and of the flesh. But this doesn't come easy you've been a Christian for 10 seconds, you know this isn't easy. The striving for holiness and is elsewhere in Scripture described as war. It's a battle. Our remaining sinful tendencies will fight within us. Our confession of faith calls this a continual and irreconcilable war. Our desires of the flesh and of the spirit are battling against the spirit and against the flesh. And yet with all these opponents and difficulties, our confession also states that through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part will overcome. Saints will grow in grace, will perfect holiness in the fear of God. They will pursue a heavenly life in gospel obedience to all the commands that Christ as head and king have given them in his word. We will not ultimately be overcome, but instead will grow in grace by the power of His Holy Spirit. We will pursue a heavenly life, Confession says. I love that language. So how are you doing in this battle? How are you doing in the battle for holiness? Are the front lines of your battle advancing? Or have you been retreating? We can examine ourselves using just, I'll pick one of the Ten Commandments to check ourselves. The tenth commandment says you shall not covet. Which means sinfully desire something that somebody else has. It means to be discontent with what God has given to you and long after what somebody else has been given. And so, using that lens, that bar, the benchmark, how was your week? Has your home been unsatisfying to you and promoting discontentment within you? Has your job been a bother and a chore that you lament about and whine about and grumble and complain? What about your car? Or your health? Or your spouse? Or your kids? Whatever the category is. Is there discontentment bubbling up within you and longing after what somebody else has? If I just had that, then all my problems would go away. If I didn't have this thing here, then my life would be just peachy. If you believe, brothers and sisters, what we've described above, that we have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, then we must also be saints as well, putting to death the sin of discontentment. Our sanctifying God loves us enough to die that we might be washed. Will he not also give us the things that we need in this life? Look at the lilies of the field, Jesus says. If God so clothes them with what they need and the next day they're cut down and thrown in the fire, how much more will he not give you what you need? Don't listen to the lies of Satan which says, you know what, You, you really do deserve better than this. God must not love you because you're not getting what they got. God loves them more than you. In fact, he doesn't really love you at all. That's what Satan says. They're just echoes of those first lies in the garden. Has God really said? Satan doesn't have a very big playbook. He's using the same lies again and again since the garden. Has God really said? That's what he's whispering in your ear. Satan wants us to doubt God's word and doubt that God's word says... About his goodness. We have to cast off those lies and listen to the Word of God, which says God is both good to us and God is faithful to give us what we need when we need it. Don't crave that which has not been given, but rather rest in the One who has given you what He, in His infinite wisdom, has determined you need for your good. What does it mean to be a saint, to be a holy one? Well, in large part, it means a heart level submission to the providence of God and what he has provided for you rather than the sinful rebellion against his plan and his provision towards you. Believers, be the holy ones of God by trusting in his providence rather than coveting that which has not been given to you. Be saints in Christ Jesus. Paul calls the Corinthian church the church of God. He calls them sanctified in Jesus Christ, and he calls them saints. And fourth, note how Paul addresses them when he, in their connection to the global body of Christ, in connection to the church of Christ universal, the universal church. Verse 2 says, The church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're called to be saints, but not unto an island of their own. They're not an isolated body. They're not unrelated to or disconnected from the church universal. We are part of a global body of Christ. A communion of saints is the older word that's used for it. Corinth did not have the market cornered on the gospel message neither does morning people by the way we should certainly strive to have the purest gospel proclamation that we can have and the most biblical polity and the most upright congregation of saints but none of that should preclude great charity when speaking of other congregations even congregations with great problems consider corinth it had fractured leadership They were taking each other to court and suing one another. They were openly accepting of a couple in great sexual sin. They were divided. They were hating one another in how they observed the Lord's Supper. They were obscuring the gospel through a vain love of impressive rhetoric and oration. They had disorderly and chaotic worship. They prioritized certain public and showy gifts of the Holy Spirit over and against other gifts. They had forgotten what love looked like. They were a mess. And yet Paul calls them saints. The church of God. They have been sanctified. And they've been sanctified with the global church of Christ. They are part of the communion of saints. They are members of Christ's very body would would we extend such charity when we look at other churches around do we view with charity and grace and love this church in Corinth struggled with a pure gospel and they tolerated sin surrounding sacraments and discipline which the reformed church has historically said were the benchmarks of what a true church is and yet Paul calls them saints In fact, we little taste of next week, in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you. For this messed up, fractured church. He's thankful. Always thankful. Overflowing with thankfulness. Why bring this up? Well, I bring it up in part because the American church, particularly within the Reformed Baptist tradition, has a history of being fractured and harsh and judging and retreating from fellowship and downplaying and treating as suspect the global work of God in denominations outside of our own tradition. In short a history of being uncharitable in considering what the Spirit of God might be doing in churches that interpret the Bible a little bit differently than our own. May we never be marked with tribalism that could not acknowledge and appreciate and be thankful for what God might be doing at the church down the street or across town. Or in a different tradition or a different culture or elsewhere in the world. May we never be marked with arrogance that considers us as the only ones who preach the true gospel. And as the only way that God's spirit brings people out of darkness and into the light of his grace. If you know me, I'm not in any way downplaying doctrine or the importance of it. But charity in this area Or lack of charity is very easy to justify, to rationalize. Corinth, with all of its problems, was still part of the global communion of Christ. And that should encourage us that God's church can still stand and the gospel can still be advancing, even when individual churches struggle with real problems. Finally, we've looked at Paul, we've looked at the church in Corinth, now let's look at the final and most important character in our text, God himself. God himself. Paul ends verse 2. He says, The the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, to those called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Their Lord and ours. Paul is reminding them that God that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is master, not merely Paul's master, not merely master of the church in Corinth, but master of the church. Everyone who in any place calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ takes this God to be their Lord. And there is but one Lord, the Lord, unlike what the pagans in Corinth believed. And the fact that there is but a single Lord should mean that we should share in a similar unity. Church unity was an issue for this baby church in Corinth. It was an issue that remained in the early church. It was an issue in the medieval church. It was an issue in the church around the Reformation. It was an issue, it is an issue today. We have a single Lord and yet we struggle to love one another in humility and thus we divide and fracture and splinter. Paul knows that a church that is thinking more globally, right, his reference to anyone who in any place calls upon the name of the Lord. A church that's thinking globally is aware of the body of Christ and is mindful of our place within that global communion will be hopefully less fixated on its own problems and its own preferences see it's often the case that a church that turns inward that's concerned about itself will foster these problems and division but a church that's faithfully concerned with the global advance of the church and the great commission and evangelism and making disciples the kind of church this kind of church will often have fewer internal squabbles and less bickering they're concerned more with the lord and and the Lord of the harvest and his harvest and the work that we have to do, unless with our preferences and our predilections. May Morning View ever, forever be that kind of church. The kind of church that's focused on the purity and the proclamation of the gospel. A church motivated to honor the Lord by teaching and speaking of our Lord wherever we go. A church that's full of individual members that are willing and desirous to serve the Lord in whatever way they can to help make disciples. Serving in prayer. Serving in giving. Serving by hosting and being hospitable. Serving by mentoring. Serving by teaching. Serving by babysitting and changing tires. and Whatever way you can exercise your gifts. That's our calling. To love and to serve. And when the church is Full of people motivated to honor the Lord by serving in love, you'll nu- usually notice a church that has a sweet peace, which is the fruit that Paul prays for in verse three. Look at verse three. He says, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. From God, grace and peace from God. God is the source of it all. He is the source of grace and grace is the root of from which will grow gospel peace within our communion. Grace is the root planted deep within our heart and peace is the fruit that grows out of a heart that's been gripped by that grace. Do we have that kind of heart of peace? Have we been so gripped by the grace of God that's pulled us from the muck of this world and sanctified us, polished us off, washed us and made us... Clean, That we're willing to die to ourselves and our preferences in order to defend the peace of God in the church. Or are we like the Corinthian church which is full of opinions and preferences and posturing and politicking so that the church becomes divided and decidedly unpeaceful. We have to remember the sacrifice that Christ has made for us and how far down He has stooped into the muck and mire of this world to pluck us up and how high He has raised us. He's made us saints. And when we've cherished that good news within our hearts, we will be quick to defer to others. We'll be quick to forgive when others offend us. Quick to love. Quick to serve where there's a need. Rather than being quick to anger and quick to stir up quarrels over our preferences that we cling to so tightly. Which is exactly what the church in Corinth was doing. In conclusion, when we've cherished the love of God that's been shown to us in Jesus Christ, then we'll be quicker to love others and so promote the charity and peace of the church of God. And we'll have opportunity to reflect on this theme of unity and love in many of the upcoming sermons, but. For now, let's close by remembering that grace and peace are what God are, are what Paul is praying for the church in Corinth, that they would remember the grace of God that's been shown to them, and by doing so also taste of God's peace. May that be our hearts and our experience here at Morningview. Amen. Let's pray. Our good God of grace. And our God of peace, we pray that we would have hearts that would be ever gripped by the grace that's been shown to us. That we have been washed. That we have been sanctified. And that we have been made saints in the church of God. What a high calling and a glorious privilege, Lord. May we ever meditate upon that. And by doing so, have peace in our hearts and love overflowing that we might fight for the peace of our church. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close by standing and singing the doxology tonight.